0: Let us pray. Almighty Lord and gracious Heavenly Father, we thank You for all You do for us. You continually serve us, giving us every good gift. Your mercy amazes us as You forgive our sins, though they are great. Grant us Your gifts today, gifts of life and wisdom and glory. Equip us for service in Your kingdom. Thank You for making us Your people, your new creation, your treasured possession, we give you thanks and praise, Heavenly Father, in your Son and through your Holy Spirit. Amen. And now, the lesson of the day from Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Here again, the Word of God. Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any Therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation With fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do for His good pleasure. Do all things without complaining and disputing, that you may become blameless and harmless, children of God, without fault, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you shine as stars in the world, holding fast the word of life, so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. Yes, and if I am being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. For the same reason, you also be glad and rejoice with me. This is the word of the Lord. Be to God. Let's pray together. And now, Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in our sight. O oh, Lord, our rock and our kinsman Redeemer. Amen. (laughs) Philippians 2 is really uh, one of my favorite passages. It's a passage that I think really takes us to the heart of the Christian faith and the heart of the Christian life, really you could say the heart of the church's life. In this chapter, in verses 5-11, through we have a hymn to Christ. It's recognized as an early Christian hymn, perhaps composed by Paul himself. Perhaps it already existed, and Paul simply drops it into his letter at the opportune moment. Uh, It's a song that really traces the whole course of Christ's ministry. It's a song that tells the whole story of Christ's work, the story of how he lived and died and was exalted after his death. But flanking the hymn on either side, before the hymn and after the hymn, are a series of commandments, a series of instructions. And what we find is this, the shape of the Christian life is determined by the shape of Christ's own life. That is to say, the shape of Christ's ministry to us determines the shape of our ministry to one another and to the world. The story of Christ's life should be reflected in the story of the church's community. There should be a correspondence. We look at what Jesus did, how he lived his life as traced out in the hymn, and then we look at the commands. And as those commands that flank the hymn are fulfilled, we find that the church ends up being remade in the image of Christ, having the same story, sharing the same pattern of life that Christ himself displayed. The commands Paul gives before and after the hymn are grounded in the hymn. They flow into the hymn and they flow out of the hymn. And of course, it's very simple. Because of what Jesus has done for us, we must live a certain way. We must follow His lead. We must be conformed to His pattern, to His example. Paul opens this hymn about Christ, in fact, by linking what he Uh, what what he has to say in this hymn about Christ with how he wants them to live. We see this in verse 5, the way he introduces the hymn. He says, Let this mind be in you all, that is, in your community. Let this mind be in your church family, which was also in Christ Jesus. In other words, Paul is saying the church is in Christ Jesus. We are united to him. And so we should share in his mindset. We should share in his posture and his way of life. The way Jesus lived is the way those who are in union with Jesus should live. We corporately are in union with Christ, so we should live like Christ. That's what Paul is saying. Let Christ's mindset be in you all. Really, this raises the whole question, what does it mean to be in Christ? I think that's really the key phrase there in verse 5. What does it mean to be in Christ? Uh, Pastor Tim Chester compares it to being in a car. Think about being in a car. If you're in a car, what happens to the car happens to you. If the car starts to move, then you start to move as well. If it stops, you stop. Where the car goes, you go, because you're in the car. And that's how it is in a way with with Christ, Paul is saying. Where Christ goes, you're to go. Or really, maybe a better illustration would be not so much a car, but a roller coaster. Because as we'll see when we get into the hymn, the way that the hymn tells the story of Jesus, it's down, 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 up, 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 up. It's that kind of, uh, of ride. But of course, Paul's point is not just that we are along for the ride. The bond that we have is much tighter than that. The bond between Christ and his people is much tighter than the connection you have with a car that you're traveling in or a roller coaster that you've gotten on board of. It's actually compared in Scripture to the way the head of a body is united to the rest of the body. The head and the body share a common life. They're one organism, so to speak. And so it is with Christ and His church. Or another biblical illustration of our union with Christ, it's like the branches that are united to the vine. And they draw their life from the vine. The branches and the vine are one. Or the way a bride is united to her husband. That's perhaps the most common biblical model for the church's union with Christ. What does it mean to be in Christ? It means we have a deep oneness with Him. And in this oneness with Christ, we have a new identity. We have new status. We have new powers You are united to Christ Jesus, Paul is saying, and so you are to live in a certain kind of way. Certain things are now true about you. And so it's been said, Paul's whole ethic, really, his whole way of describing the Christian life is really be who you are. Become what you already are in Christ Jesus. Be who you are in Christ. So what is Paul doing here? He he says we're to have the same mindset, the same outlook on life, the same approach to life, the same way of leaning into life that Christ himself has. And so we have to ask, what kind of mind do we find in Christ Jesus? What kind of mindset are we to have because we are in Christ Jesus? Well, Paul tells us as the uh, hymn begins to unfold, beginning in verse 6, Christ was in the form of God, but did not consider equality with God a thing to be exploited or seized, depending on how uh, this word is best translated. could could really be read either way. What does it mean? As the Son of God, as the eternal Son of God, Jesus did not use His Godness to His own advantage, but rather to the advantage of others. He did not exploit his own powers. Jesus is God, but it doesn't use his godness or his godhood. He doesn't use all his divine attributes for his own sake. He puts all that power, all that advantage to work for us. He doesn't exploit what he has. He uses it for the good of others. But we could also say he doesn't seize or grasp after equality with God as the Son of Man, as the new Adam. Jesus did not do what Adam did in the Garden of Eden. He did not seize after equality with God. He did not seize divine glory for himself. What does Jesus do? He waits patiently and he obeys and he remains faithful even through great Trial and he trusts God, his heavenly Father, to exalt him in the right time and in the right way. Whereas the first Adam promoted himself and seized equality with God, not so with Jesus. He doesn't seize glory for himself, he waits for his Father to exalt him. See, Jesus is in the form of God, it means he's truly God and truly man. Jesus fully reveals true Godhood and true manhood. It's interesting how Paul uses expressions like form of God and likeness of men uh, in this in this hymn. What do those expressions mean? I think Paul's intending to show us through this hymn that Jesus reveals what it means to be God and what it means to be man. He puts true Godhood on display what God is really like and true manhood, what man is to be like. So if you ask the question, what is God? Like, what does God look like? The answer is Jesus. What form does God take when the invisible God makes Himself visible? Jesus. Jesus is the answer. Jesus shows us what God looks like. He is the image of the invisible God. The invisible God making Himself visible. You want to know what God is like? You look at Jesus. That's what this hymn shows us. But Jesus not only shows us what God is like, as astounding as that is, he also shows us what true humanity or true humanness is all about. He shows us what true manhood looks like. Jesus is the ideal man, the ideal human. He is as human as he could be, as human as Adam was. He comes in the likeness of men. He's just like us in every way. With the exception that he does not sin. But he is like us in every way. And so he shows us what human life is supposed to look like. Not a life of grasping or seizing, but a life of trusting and receiving. He is human as God intended humanity to be. And that's why he can put the human race back on track, and that's really ultimately what this hymn is about. The song continues. He made himself nothing, or actually uh, my translation has it, he made himself of no reputation. Uh, Best read, I think, he emptied himself, or he poured himself out. This is an echo of Isaiah's servant song. In Isaiah, the prophet speaks of a coming servant of the Lord who will pour himself out for the sake of his people, who will empty himself in order to redeem his people, who will give his life that others who deserve death might live. And we know, Paul, that here in this hymn, the servant song is being echoed because that's what the hymn goes on to say. Taking the form of a servant. He is the servant of the Lord. As the servant of the Lord, he empties himself. Isn't it interesting, Paul, in uh, Colossians uh, says the fullness of the deity dwells in Jesus. The fullness of the deity lives in Jesus. Jesus is full of divinity. But how does he act that out? He empties himself. doesn't mean he empties himself of his divinity as if he was filled up with it and then poured it out. Rather, he expresses his divinity By pouring Himself out, He expresses His divine life and His divine attributes through serving. He's full of the deity, and so He pours Himself out. Because this is what God is really like. Jesus is in the form of God, and He is in the form of a servant, and that's really the point. God comes among us as one who serves. When God reveals himself in Jesus, what kind of God do we find? A God who is generous and gracious, a God who is kind and merciful. This is the self giving God, the self sacrificing God, the God of service and sacrifice, the God of outgoing, outflowing love. Uh, Some of you are probably familiar with the movie Evan Almighty. Uh, the movie, Evan Almighty, I'm certainly not endorsing everything about the movie or its theology. Uh, there are some problems with it, certainly. Uh, but there are some things about it also that are very, very interesting, very profound. Uh, in the movie, uh, Evan is commanded by God to build an ark. He's kind of a modern-day Noah. And uh, God is represented in the movie by Morgan Freeman because who else would represent God, right? That's one of the problems with the movie. But Morgan Freeman plays, plays God. And what's interesting is, every time Morgan Freeman shows up representing God, he's always serving in some way. He's scrubbing floors, washing floors. Or he's waiting on tables. And you know he unsuspectingly will come up to A customer. At one point he has a conversation with, you know, Evan, who's the modern day Noah, with with his wife. Uh, Morgan Freeman has a conversation with her, so this is really God having a conversation with Evan's wife. And uh, at the end of the conversation he says, uh, gotta run, got a lot of people to serve. And that's exactly it. That's the kind of God that we see in Jesus. A God who when He comes among us, washes feet, serves tables. A God who has a lot of people to serve. This is what it means to be God. This is how Jesus expresses His Godness. Every time we see Jesus show up in the Gospels, He's serving. He's waiting on people. He's doing things using His own power to the advantage of others. This is how He expresses His Godhood. And of course, if this is what it means for Jesus to be in the form of God, what does it mean for us to be in the image of God made in God's own likeness? It means we're made to be servants as well. Think of Jesus teaching His disciples as they argue over who will be the greatest, as they express selfish ambition. As they argue over who will be the greatest, Jesus teaches them no true greatness is found in becoming a servant. You want to be the greatest of all, become the servant of all. He who wants to be first should make himself last. Or think of Jesus in the upper room washing the disciples' feet, even washing the feet of Judas, who he knows will betray him. If you were in that position, if I was in that position, You might think, well, I can wash the feet of these other guys because they've been pretty good to me, but not Judas. I'm not going to touch his feet. But no, Jesus washes the feet of his betrayer. You see his service. Jesus has infinite power and he combines it with infinite love and infinite humility. Indeed, we we all know the saying of Lord Acton. Lord Acton said, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. That's true. That's true for everyone else. It's true for everyone else, but not for Jesus. Because in Jesus, here you have absolute power wedded to absolute humility. Absolute power wedded to absolute service. All that power put to work for the good of others. Power that doesn't corrupt. Power that serves. Paul goes on in this hymn. Uh, says that He humbled Himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. As if to say the worst kind of death, the death of all deaths, the the, the, the most painful, humiliating, shameful death of all, the death of the cross. See, this hymn is tracing out the, the, the downward arc of Christ's life and ministry. The Son of God humbled Himself in becoming a man, the Creator entering His creation, indeed entering His creation as a helpless baby. And not even just that, but being born in the lowliest condition of all in a manger, basically in a barn where the animals are kept. Throughout the whole course of His life, He lived in humility. We find in the Gospels, He didn't even have a place to lay His head. He had nothing to His name. And of course, you ultimately see it at the cross. The measure of His humility and the measure of His love Is the cross. It is not what anyone would have expected. People expected God to show up. The Jews expected God to show up in their midst in some way. And oh, when he came, there would be all this pomp and circumstance, all this glory. It would be so obvious. Everybody would see it. This is not what anyone would have expected. When God shows up, what does He do? He does the most ungodlike thing by dying the most painful, shameful, accursed death possible the death of the cross. The cross reveals the depth He was willing to go to to save us, the depths of His love. He put our burden on His back, He took our shame. Our sorrow, He took the blame and the punishment that our sins deserve the Son of God who lived from all eternity in the Father's glory. The Son of God now bearing the curse of God. The inglorious shame of the cross. The glorious One, the most glorious One of all, suffering the greatest humiliation. That's why the song says even the death of the cross because you can't stoop any lower than this. See, what's what's the story here that this Song is telling, it's the story of the Son of God. An unexpected story. The Son of God stooped to become a man. As the God-man, He stooped to become a servant. As a servant, He stooped even further to die. And, And it's not just that He died, but in dying He stooped to the worst death of all, the death of the cross. He experienced the worst that this world has to offer. Not only that, He experienced the worst of His Father's judgment and anger and wrath towards our sin. There was no further or lower place for Him to go. He, he goes as low as it's possible to go. You can't get any lower than this death on the cross under the judgment of God. But then the song turns. And what do we find? Therefore. Therefore because he did not grasp for glory, because he did not seize for glory himself, because he did not exploit his godness to his own advantage, therefore the Father has exalted him and given him a name above every name. Just as he was in the lowest place, lower than, than it's possible to go it seems, the, the lowest of the lows, now he experiences the highest of the highs, His humble obedience has led to exalted glory. And so what's going to happen? The hymn goes on. It celebrates his triumph. In the end, every knee will bow to him. Every knee. We read about this in Isaiah 45. This is just what Isaiah prophesied. Every knee would bow to the Lord. In Isaiah, the Lord says, I am God alone and there is no other beside me. And every knee will bow to me. Every tongue will swear an oath. To me. And now in this hymn, we find every knee is bowing to Jesus. Every tongue is confessing his name. What's happened? Jesus has been brought into the definition of God. The oneness of God includes not only the Father, but now the Son also. And every knee is going to bow before him. Every knee. Every knee, by choice or by force, will bow to Jesus. Everyone either chooses humility or humiliation. You bow in humility or you will be bowed in humiliation. Those are the only alternatives. Now it's just amazing to think early Christians singing a hymn that ends this way. They lived in a world where Caesar was praised in song, where Caesar was worshiped where Caesar seemed to have all the power and glory on his side. Imagine these tiny bands of Christians in the first century in the Roman Empire gathering in their little huddled churches, tiny little congregations, singing together that every knee will bow to Jesus. You know, hear they are in these tiny house churches, or hidden in the catacombs even, on the run from their persecutors, suffering at the hands of their Jewish opponents, and then also at the hands of the Roman Empire, it seems crazy to sing that their God, their Savior, the one they think is the Messiah, every knee is going to bow to Him. But they had confidence. They had confidence in the unstoppable power and love of Jesus. They knew that Jesus would be exalted because He had been crucified. They knew that Jesus would receive all glory because He had endured all shame. If He endured all this shame, surely He's going to receive all glory in the end. If He sank this low, surely He must be exalted this high. They had absolute confidence in the unstoppable power and love of Jesus. And so they knew, yes, someday every knee will bow and every tongue will acknowledge that Christ is Lord. What Isaiah said, that all the nations would bow before God, that's going to come true when all the nations bow before Jesus. Yes, he is the servant of Yahweh, the servant of the Lord, but he's also Yahweh incarnate. He is Yahweh himself. He is the one the nations will bow before. They will swear an oath of loyalty in his name. And you see, this hymn really then is not just the story of redemption, as glorious as that is, it's really the story of the human race. It tracks the history of the world to its culmination. This is history's goal. This is history's destiny. This is the destiny of the human race, to bow before Jesus. And so, of course, this hymn, a lot like Psalm 2. Psalm 2 calls on the kings of the earth to kiss the sun now while there's time. To bow before the Son now while there's time, before His wrath flares up and judges you. So this hymn does the same. Bow before Jesus now. Humble yourself before Him now so He won't have to humiliate you later. Do not be ashamed of Him now so He won't put you to shame later. That's the way this hymn Ends. It's the culmination of it all. Every eye will see Jesus' glory. And when every eye sees Jesus' glory, of course, Jesus will point them to the glory of His Father. And so the Father and the, and the Son will share in this glory for all eternity. That's the hymn. That's the pattern we're given here. Now, consider how all of this relates to the commands that are grouped around this song. Remember, I said there are commands that flank this hymn, before this hymn and after this hymn. Notice the commands that are given in the first four verses of chapter 2. Paul says, Fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. (laughs) These things are getting piled up. It it sounds very repetitive. It sounds very repetitive. Redundant. Why why is Paul repeating himself, it seems? He's just piling up different ways of telling the Christian community in Philippi to love one another, to be united, to live as one. Well, he's doing this because we need the repetition. We need the redundancy. We need to be reminded of this again and again. We need to be told the same thing in all these different ways. Because it's so easy for us to forget it. It's so easy for us to fracture and to fragment and to turn against each other. It's even so easy for us in our day to celebrate diversity, which is legitimate. There are passages in the New Testament that talk about the diversity within the body of Christ, the diversity of gifts and callings that God gives to us. We appreciate that diversity, but we can be so bent on celebrating diversity, we forget the unity. What integrates it all and ties it all together, it's this love and this oneness, this one-mindedness that we're to have in Christ. Paul wants us to think the same, to share the same mind, to share one love and one life. That's what he wants the church to look like. A community of oneness walking in lockstep together. doesn't mean a kind of uniformity that steamrolls that legitimate diversity. But it does mean there has to be a oneness. We're to live as one. And then he gives these commands that really spell out what will make that happen. How do we live as one? How do we make it happen? He gives these very specific instructions. And notice how others-centered all of these commands are. This is an others-centric ethic that Paul is giving to the church. He says, let nothing be done through selfish ambition." Again, think of Jesus correcting the selfish ambitions that his disciples had. These selfish ambitions for greatness his disciples had. Jesus had to correct that. It still has to be corrected in the church today. Think of the first Adam who acted in selfish ambition and vain conceit. That's not how Jesus as the last Adam acted. He didn't seize or grasp anything for himself. The instructions go on. But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself and look out not only for his own interests, but for the interests of others. Paul here says you have to take the focus off of yourself and learn to focus on others. This right here is spelling out what it means to love your neighbor as yourself. This is what it means to live a life of humility and sacrifice. We are so typically obsessed with with ourselves. Are we not? So curved in on ourselves, so bent on serving the self, seeking comfort and pleasure for the self. And of course, that's not wrong to do in a certain kind of way, but only if you understand that your greatest happiness and joy is going to be found in the happiness and joy of others. If you really want to be happy, you're going to live this way. Because true happiness and true joy, as we're going to see, is found in pouring your life out for others. What does Paul say here? In lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Look out not only for your own interests, but also for the interests of others. What are we to do? Again, we're so obsessed with ourselves, so absorbed in ourselves, so concerned with our own rights and getting what is ours. We all tend to be utterly focused on On the self. It's been said, we live in a selfie culture. How do I look? How am I perceived? What do others think of me? This is our fixation in life, and actually it's also the main source of our anxieties in life. This is why we're so anxious all the time. We're so anxious about how we look, how we're perceived. We want to look a certain way in the eyes of others. We want others to recognize us and praise us and like us. We are so worried about what others think of us. And of course, especially for our youth, but adults are are not totally exempt from this. But in our culture, this is especially ratcheted up in social media these anxieties. Think about this. A picture now put out on Facebook or on Instagram doesn't just address this question, how do I look, so to speak, or what do you think of me, to a small group of uh, uh, family and friends. No, it puts that question out there for the whole world to answer and to judge. Indeed, That's why the question, how do I look, has become a cultural catchphrase. Uh, Tim Chester points this out. He points out, you know, if you're scrolling through pictures, say on your phone or somebody else's phone, I guarantee you virtually every single one of you will do this. When you come, If you're in a picture, what do you look at first? You look at yourself. That's the first thing your eyes are drawn to. Your eyes are drawn to yourself. And you judge whether or not the whole, it doesn't matter how many other people are in it really, you judge whether or not it's a good picture by how you look in it. And if you don't look good, you delete it. If you do look good, then you want to keep it and put it out there. We look at ourselves first because we are obsessed with ourselves. But what does Paul want us to do? He wants us to take our eyes off ourselves and look at others. That's really the measure of genuine humility. Not what you think about yourself or even what others might think about you, but what you think of others. Do you think of others? Do you see their needs as legitimate? Do you take an interest in their interests? Do you find ways to put others ahead of yourself? But of course, the real secret to doing this, the real secret to this kind of humility is not just taking your eyes off of yourself to focus on others. It's taking your eyes off of yourself to focus on Jesus. Because Jesus is the source of humility. The only true source of humility in all the universe. Jesus is your model for humility. Again, think of Jesus. This glorious Son of God. He's he existed from all eternity in the Father's glory. What does He do? He enters into the world as a baby and He's born, no, not in a royal palace, but in a manger. Think of Jesus stooping to be born in the manger. Think of Jesus then in his ministry welcoming children. Nobody else had time for the children. Jesus makes time for them. Again, think of Jesus washing feet, taking the lowliest job, the job of a slave. Think of Jesus touching a leper and eating with social misfits and outcasts. These people weren't going to make Jesus look good. These people were going to make Jesus look bad, quite frankly. And he did it. Anyway, unconcerned with his own reputation or his own status. And of course, most of all, think of Jesus on the cross, obedient to the point of death. Jesus is the ultimate servant, Jesus is the humble one. And true humility stems from seeing who Jesus is, what he's done for you, and that you needed these things done. True humility stems from seeing what Jesus has done and then seeing the security that you have in Him. The security of your status in Him. The security that you have in His love. True humility comes from finding your identity in Christ. It's not what others say about you. It's not what others think of you. It's what your Heavenly Father says about you in Christ Jesus. That you are righteous that you're accepted, that you're beloved, that you're welcomed, that you belong. And when you know the Father says these things about you, that that's God's opinion of you, the opinion of others don't matter nearly as much. Humble yourself in service to others and know that God will exalt you. Listen to these verses and you're going to see. This is the pattern of the Gospel. This is the pattern of the Kingdom. This is the pattern of Kingdom living again and again. Matthew twenty three twelve, For whoever exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. Luke 14, 11, For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. Luke 18, 14. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Again and again you see this. You humble yourself and God exalts you. You exalt yourself. God brings you low. It's interesting to me in those verses that when Jesus is describing this, it's always for everyone who exalts himself as if that's what most people are going to do. And then it's he, singular, who humbles himself will be exalted. It's because this kind of humility is all too rare. The ones exalting themselves, that's the many, The humbling himself, that's in the singular. It's always he who humbles himself. This kind of humility is all too rare. But it's what we're called to, this kind of Christ-like humility. This is what makes the church the church. It's what should mark us out as the disciples of Jesus. But there are also a number of commands that follow the song, that, that, that flank the song on the other side, on the back side of the hymn. And we want to look at these as well. He picks up in verse 12, he says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. He says, you obeyed when I was there in your midst, and you've, you know, I've gotten good reports that you've continued to be obedient even more in my absence. And he says, continue to work out your salvation with reference and with trembling. And why are they to do this? Well, Paul goes on. It's because God is at work in them to will and to do His good pleasure. They're to work out their salvation because God's at work in them. And it's not just that God is at work inside each of their hearts as individuals. I think that's included here. But it's especially He's at work in their community. Salvation is worked out in the context of the church. We're saved together. That's God's goal. Not just saved individuals, but a redeemed community. A redeemed community where we really live as one. That's what God wants. A family. A family. We we get along and we live as one. We live in harmony and, and in peace with one another. And so Paul goes on. Again, how are you going to make this happen? Well, Paul says, do all things without complaining or disputing. In other words, don't be like those Israelites who grumbled and therefore perished in the wilderness. That generation of Israelites was a crooked and perverse generation. That's how they're described in Deuteronomy 32. And Paul echoes that here. It says, you live in the midst of another crooked and perverse generation. A generation of grumblers and complainers. Don't be like them. Don't fall the way the Israelites did. And so instead of grumbling, give thanks. Instead of complaining, praise God. Don't be one who engages in these kinds of foolish Arguments and complaints. Because you know, that kind of thing is contagious. One person starts complaining and it trickles through. I'm sure you've seen this in your family. happens in the church too. Paul says, don't complain or argue. And Paul says, do this so that you can shine as lights or shine as stars. That's really the word that's used here. Shine as stars in the world holding forth the word of life. Paul says, this is your chance to be a star. You know, when we think of stars, we think certainly of the galaxies and the heavens, but then we also, you know, think of how we use that word. Movie stars, athletic stars. Everyone wants to be a star, right? Everyone wants their chance to shine. God says in His Word, His people are stars. This reminds us of God's promise to Abraham in Genesis. God says to Abraham, His descendants will be as numerous as the stars of heaven. Not just that, and it's not just a numerical kind of thing. It's not just the quantity of stars and that each one of those stars in the heaven in some way represents a a child of Abraham. It's also the quality of people we are. The stars were made to be rulers the heavenly lights or rulers over the earth, were made to be kings. Kings would come from Abraham. God said to Abraham, his descendants would be as numerous as the grains of sand on the earth and as countless as the stars in the heavens above. His descendants would be a new heavens and a new earth. And that's what we are. A kingdom of priests. We're, Abrahamic, we're the Abrahamic family. It means we shine as stars. We've been made kings. We can't be kings. We can't live as kings. We can't live as God's royalty if we're grumbling and complaining and arguing. We must be above that. Children of Abraham are to shine like stars. Of course, it also reminds us of the star that led the Magi to baby Jesus. If we are stars, it means we're going to be leading people to Jesus. To the light of all lights. The one who is light of light, the light of the world. And indeed this language that's used here that Paul uses in Philippians 2 of shining as stars, it actually comes from Daniel chapter 12 where God's people rise from the dead to shine as stars. It means we live the life of the resurrection even now. Our lives become signposts pointing to God's future world. This is the kind of lifestyle, the quality of life we're to show. And then Paul concludes with himself as an example. We're to shine as stars, not grumbling or arguing, but living blameless lives as children of God. But then Paul wraps up this whole section using himself as an example. He describes himself as God's drink offering being poured out. And, of course, this takes us right back to the song, to the hymn earlier in the chapter, where we saw Jesus emptying himself, Jesus pouring himself out. Paul now presents himself as one who is imitating Jesus. He, too, will empty himself for their sakes. He says he is a drink offering. Of course, this takes us back to the drink offerings of the Old Testament law. We always think about the animal sacrifices of the law, the animal offerings, but there are also drink offerings. And wine or uh, some other kind of strong drink would be poured out. Apparently for God himself to drink, at least symbolically, poured out at the base of the altar. And that's how Paul describes himself here. He says, I am being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith. He says, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Paul's pouring himself out in joy. And he wants them to share in his joy. He ends this whole section, verse 18, for the same reason, you also be glad and rejoice with me. If you want to be glad and rejoice with Paul, you've got to live like Paul who's seeking to live like Jesus. You've got to pour yourself out. That's how you get joy. You want joy? Great! Go be joyous. The way to find joy is to pour yourself out. God is not a killjoy. God does not kill joy. God kills sin. Because sin stands in the way of joy. In killing sin, God makes room for joy. Sin is the real killjoy. Oh sure, sin brings a kind of temporary joy. A fleeting joy for a few minutes. If sin didn't feel good, people wouldn't do it. It does. But it never lasts. And so being selfish can feel good for a few minutes, but it doesn't lead to a life of joy and gladness. A life of of selfishness, the sin of self-absorption, clinging to what is yours instead of pouring yourself out. These are great ways to kill your own joy. If you want to be joyous, pour yourself out the way Paul poured himself out for the Philippians, the way Jesus poured himself out for the people. Just as Jesus poured out His life, His blood for our sake and for the sake of the world, so Paul is doing the same. Pouring out his life for the sake of the church and for the sake of the world. And by implication, this is our calling too. Your call to make yourself a drink offering. To pour yourself out for one another, and for the life of the world. To pour yourself out at God's altar. And paradoxically, as we empty ourselves of ourselves, that's when we get filled with joy. You'll be filled with joy. Empty yourself of the self. Empty yourself of yourself. And then you will be filled with joy. No doubt when Paul speaks here being poured out as a drink offering, the Lord's Supper uh, is at least partly in Paul's mind as well. It's our New Covenant drink offering, only now we don't pour it out at God's altar. We actually get to drink of it ourselves. God shares the drink offering with us. But understand this. When we drink that cup, as we will here in a few moments, when we drink the cup, yes, it is the cup of the kingdom. And yes, that cup means that we reign with Christ. Wine is the drink of kings and we are royalty. We're drinking the cup of the kingdom, but it is also the cup of martyrdom. Because what do kings do? True kings. True kings lay their lives down. They sacrifice. They serve. They give, they do all this for the good of others. That's what royalty means. That's what true kingship means. That's how true kingship expresses itself as the king pours himself out, as he empties himself. And see, that's what God calls each of us to. He fills us up. He fills our lives up. He fills us up with different powers and privileges. He fills us up with different gifts and opportunities. He fills us up with resources of time and wealth. And now He says to us, Go pour yourself out for me. I have filled you up. Now go empty yourself. For in emptying ourselves, we are filled filled with joy, filled with the joy of God. See, in humility, there is glory. In dying this way, we live. In this brokenness and sacrifice, there is joy. The way to live life to the fullest is to live life to the emptiest. You want to be full, full, pour yourself out. Let's pray and give God thanks. O Father, may we as disciples of Your Son, Jesus Christ, follow His lead. Fill us with self-emptying love. Help us to pour ourselves out in humility, in acts of service and kindness for one another's sake and for the life of the world. Help us to do this, to pour ourselves out that we might be filled to the brim with Your joy and Your peace.
1: This we pray in Christ's name. Amen. And as God's royal priesthood, let us stand together for prayer. Almighty God, you faithfully fulfill all of your promises. We thank you that you sent to us Jesus in the fullness of time. We glorify you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we ask that you would enable us to receive your word with eagerness. We give you thanks that you invite us to this, your table, each week to fellowship with you. You are great, O God, and you are worthy to receive our praise. You rule on high with a mighty arm. Your eye watches your congregation. You guard us with love and strength. You disperse your enemies and bring them down to the dust. But those who look to you are safe. They awake to the morning's light and take joy in the work of their hands. We thank you because you are our God. We gather together to unite our hearts in praise, and we ask that you would give us the grace to worship you in spirit and truth. Let us mimic the angels as they fall before you. Let us offer our sacrifices. We are your servants, O God. Let your glory now be exalted and be manifested among us. We lift up our hearts to you, and our hands are outstretched. We thank you for meeting us here in your house. We cannot count the many ways in which you bless us, and we are eternally grateful for all that you do for us. Give to us that we may continue in the unity of faith and fight with perseverance against all the temptations of this world, never deviating from the right course, whatever new troubles arise. And though we are exposed to many deaths, toils, and tribulations, let us not be seized with fear, such as may extinguish hope in our hearts but may we learn to raise up our eyes and minds and our thoughts to your great power by which you empower us, your people. And Lord, we pray that you would be pleased to make your ways known to us and your saving health known to this nation. More especially, we pray for our local church, that you would guide us and govern us by your good spirit, that all of us here may be led in the way of truth, hold in the faith and the unity of spirit, in the bond of peace and in the righteousness of life. We pray that you would grow us in spiritual maturity and conform us further to the image of Christ, our head. We ask that you would make us good servants to our community surrounding us, that they would see the love of Christ in us. We pray for our pastors and officers, that you would guide and direct them in all your ways, and that we would be led with wisdom. We pray for our marriages in our church, that you would strengthen the bonds between husbands and wives, and that you would give us wisdom as we seek to raise God the children. Lord, today we especially thank you for the nation in which we live. We thank you for the freedom of worship that we enjoy. We pray for President Trump, for Vice President Pence, for our Congress, for our courts, that all that serve there would serve with a fear of you and be reverent to your name. Lord, we pray today for our expectant mothers, for all among us who need healing, especially remembering Jim Jordan today, for strength and successful treatment for everyone that's battling cancer among us, Blessings for coming on Peru summer mission camp. We pray for those grieving the loss of a loved one, and we especially remember today Vette Chartier and the loss of her brother. We pray for people that need more care for aging and the caretakers who take care of them. We pray for those who desire to have children to be fruitful, for the singles of our church, for people that have unbelieving family and friends, for any of those who are seeking new or better employment. And Lord, we pray for the spread of your gospel throughout the world so that Jesus may be lifted on high. And Lord, we summarize all these prayers in the prayer that your Son and our Savior taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil.